Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very happy to bring the conversation I had with Adam Meshtiang. Adam researches and teaches history of empire in various states in the Arab-speaking world. He's done lots of research on natural history and Islamic law, urban history, uh, Arab state formation, uh, and many others. He is an associate professor in the history department at Duke University. He's taught at Oxford. He's uh, been a fellow at Harvard Society of Fellows and many other places. He's also author of numerous books, including the most recent, Modern Arab Kingship, Remaking the Ottoman Political Order into Interwar Middle East. Fabulous book. Absolutely enjoyed it. I highly encourage everybody to pick it up if you're into anything history, especially more current or modern history. Um, I think, you know, it's definitely the book for you. But also, there's, at least for me, I have this interesting fascination with what happens after empire. What is the ripple effects? Obviously, I've talked about the Ottoman Empire a few times here in the podcast. I think they're fast, it's a fascinating empire as the Roman Empire is, as the Syrian Empire and the Mongol, you know, uh, reign. They're all interesting in their own ways. And, um, but this was fascinating because this book is looking at kind of this concept he talks about in terms of recycling empire. Yes, empire is, is, uh, is no more, but you have these other uh, remnants of, of empire and these kind of nation states and what happens in he tells the story in the book about many of the things that happened after the end of the Ottoman Empire, and you can see the ripple effects of kind of many of the places in uh, many parts of, of, of the world uh, that were part of the Ottoman Empire today and, and the impact there. Um, so we start by talking about what comes after empire. You know, we talk about these nation states. We talk about recycling empire, what he means by that. We talk about international imperialism, sovereignty, political order rather than governance, and how local states work. We talk about nation states or federations, republic or monarchy. It's a really nice piece on uh, constitutive fictions. We talk about the British and the Ottomans in Egypt around the turn of the century. We talk about Egyptian sovereignty and the Muslim Brotherhood. And we also spend a lot of time talking about Syria, um, and that's where he spends a couple chapters actually in the book on Syria, um, and, and many other topics. It was, it was such a such a wonderful conversation. Um, a little bit of some audio difficulties uh, and some connection issues. Did our best to clean it up a bit, um, but uh, you may hear some, some audio issues, but does not uh, take anything away from uh, the conversation. Adam is absolutely brilliant. He's absolutely wonderful. Um, really, really important. Um, I think because it is a little bit more of modern history, so it's not like from the 16th century or something. Really does give some important context for um, many parts of um, the Arab-speaking world and and uh, some of these states that came after the Ottoman Empire. And really, at least for me, and hopefully for listeners, gives a lot of you know, some more recent historical context for how the landscape of much of that part of the world is today. And so it's just, it's all very relevant and all very important. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. So get over there, 
uh, follow, subscribe, like, be able to contribute if you like. Also on YouTube, uh, share with your friends, folks that you feel will be into the, the podcast and all the different conversations I have with wonderful folks. And uh, now I bring you Adam Estelle. I am here with Adam Mashjan. Adam, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm greatly looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for pronouncing my name in Hungarian. Excellent. <laughs> I try. I try. Uh, you have a, a fabulous book. I really, really enjoyed reading it, as I was telling you just before we started. It's uh, rich with detail. Uh, I really, really uh, appreciate uh, what you've done here. The book is called Modern Arab Kingship, Remaking the Ottoman Political Order in the Interwar Middle East. This is out through uh, Princeton. Uh, before we get into the book, tell uh, listeners just briefly uh, who you are professionally, academically, and, and what you're currently doing. Well, I am an associate professor of history in uh, Duke University, the history department of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and currently I'm on sabbatical, so actually currently I'm in Egypt on, on research. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice. Very, very nice. How long have you been at, uh, at Duke? Um, that's my eighth year. Wow, that's a long time. That's a long time. So are you doing research there, and then, and then you do also go out in the field and do research? Like for, for this book, did you go out and, and go to different places to do research, or, or you do it all kind of uh, at university? Well, we we usually go out to do fieldwork. Uh, we historians who do archival research, so we try to locate archives uh, where, wherever they are, and we go there. And in the case of this book, I did go to Saudi Arabia, to Lebanon, to Syria, and of course the usual European archives, UK, France, a lot of France. Um, uh, yeah, and of course Egypt is always. But this book is rather a is rather a Syria mm-hmm. book actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a there's a lot of Syria in here, which uh, which was great, and so I'm sure we'll get into that. So let's start by I guess t- talking about the the book. So as I said in the subtitle, you know, the Ottoman Empire you know looms large over the book because the Ottoman Empire was over 600 years and. And so right at the tail end, it, was, it goes all the way into the 20th century. And I think people debate probably uh, when did the Ottoman Empire actually end. Um, you know, I think people <laughs> probably still debate that. And the, the whole idea from what I get from the book is this, what comes after empire, right? And why, why should we ask that? And, you know, I think maybe people have thought about this with the British Empire or for historians, the Roman Empire, etc. There's a uniqueness to the Ottoman Empire of going for so long and into modernity or close to modernity with 20th century. So what does come after empire? How, how, why is this question important with the Ottoman Empire in particular? I think this is an excellent question, actually. Why should we ask this question? Right? Why, is it, why is it important at all? It's a good, that's a good way to start. Um, um, well, anybody who was in perhaps in high school uh, knows a very simple, a very simple framework of history. And this simple framework is that once there were these big empires, then something happened, either a revolution or 
a war or something in the, either in the 19th century or, or, I mean, that's debated. And then nation states pop up and suddenly we have the League of Nations first and then the United Nations. And here we are today, we have states which are supposedly all nation states and supposedly are all equal uh, in international law. So this is the story that we all learn, right? That empires are gone, and then, as you just said, modernity starts, perhaps. And one distinctive feature of modernity is we have these nation states, right? Um, well, uh, this this story is, although it's beautiful, and beautifully simple, it is it is it is it does not stand the scrutiny of historical research, namely that. First of all, the nation state is a, is a very, very, very new thing, much uh, more noble than we ever thought. So we usually originated from the 19th century or from enlightenment, from the late 18th century and so on and so forth. But actually, that is true for the ideology of nationalism. The nation state itself, as a political organization, is much, much younger. Some would say, even I would say, that it's only after the 1950s that we have nation-state. Perhaps before that, we have something very, very different. And why is this, is, why is this question important today? So it's a very good question. Why is it important at all? It is important because today, we again are in an age when particularly because of globalization, because of wars, and because of people's own preferences, and perhaps because of politicians and so on and so forth, we again have a plurality of states. We have city-states. The state itself as a concept and as a practice is challenged by companies, right? Like global companies. So it's important to ask questions, what examples we have in the past uh, about other types of states than, than these norms, than these ideal types of nation states and so on and so forth, in order to understand the present situation. Not to talk about the fact that today, again, we have again not only one, but not only two, but several large political organizations, the United States, China, Russia, India, which are competing with each other. So it's, it's quite similar to actually to the pre-First World War situation where we again had these big organizations that time they were called empires, uh, which competed with each other. So these are, these, are the, these are the points of justification, I would say, that this is why it's important to ask this question. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think as you're, as you're stating, you know, the, the idea of a nation state is a relatively newer concept in, this, in a way. And in the book, you talk about this really fascinating uh, idea of recycling empire, right? Of how that, okay, we were not going to have empires anymore where there's these big, uh, you know, entities that are controlling large swaths of land. Now we're just going to break it up into have these, you know, draw the lines on the map on a globe. And we're just going to have nation states, right? And we're going to have it a little bit more... Um, you know, organize in some ways. And so, but in your mind, you're saying that nation states or local states even 
uh, it's just a way of recycling empire. Is that, is that, I, I want you to talk about the concept, but I guess in recycling empire, is it, well, we understand we can't have these big empires like we used to before. So we're just going to take the same concept or the same idea and just put it into a contained space on a map. How do we look at this idea of recycling empires into uh, local states? Okay, so these these are several questions in one. So that, <laughs> yes, go ahead. Let's go a little bit slower, if I may. <laughs> yeah, okay. please. So there is this interesting question of um, how and why states are born. Mm. How, first of all, how? There is a very simple, uh, or in a way, in general, why history changes? Why is that change in history? Why, why, why was this idea that the nation state is a good unit for the whole world, right? Why, why is that? Why, why we just didn't continue empires, right? Mm -hmm. Well, some would say that we did continue empires, so we, we, shall, we, shall, we shall go there <laughs> in a moment. Um, so, but there was certainly a moment in time around the First World War when a group of powerful politicians decided at the end of the First World War that uh, an international organization called the League of Nations should be established in 1919, right? The United Nations is the successor organization of, of this. And in the, the, United Na uh, the League of Nations is... Um, International Society of Nations and Nation States. So only nations can have the right to a state. So if you are a group of, uh, let's, uh, let's say, uh, religious, uh, if you are a religious group, you don't have right mm. to a state because only nations. You have to define yourself as a nation uh, in order to get a, a polity recognized. That's a very important normative issue in, in, in 1919. This is really a very deep change in the constitution of the world, of human society in the world. Um, um, and so this is how the idea was born that, that at least there should be nation states. But of course, the fact that idea, the idea was born didn't mean that, um, that this was actually what was happening. Mm. Because what was happening was that we had several thousands of years before this moment of all kinds of empires and imperial formations. We also use the word imperial formation because it's like it gives us more play so not only empires which formally define themselves as empire, like the Ottoman Empire in this case, but also polities like the United States of America in the 19th century or yeah. France, which were Republican imperial formations. So they were expanding, actually, right? Um, but they didn't think about them, or at least in their ideology, they, 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 was, they were not explicitly imperial sometimes, mm -hmm. right? So. So there are these empires and imperial formations which 
actually operate with a number of tools that usually empires operate with, right? Violence, religion, uh, diversity, ruling through diversity or biodiversity, uh, inequality, and so on and so forth. So the, the, this, is, the, this repertoire of tools, this is the tools of imperial rule, um, very much. And so when in 1919 there was this idea that, oh, okay, we have to make nation states and everybody must define themselves, or all groups must define themselves as nations in order to have a state, it means that this very strong norm, normative call to create nations and nation states faced with a very simple reality, namely that what was in the ground was all this diversity uh, that remained from the imperial world. Religion, inequality, and so on and so forth. So what I mean on this is that what's actually happening, what's actually happening in the early 20th century is that although there is a push and there is a very strong national ideology in many, many countries in the world, especially in Europe, but also in the post-Ottoman territories, what they are doing is to trying to get to fuse these nationalist ideas with the actual previous imperial practices. That is recycling the previous mm. imperial tools and institutions into new forms. So this is also something that, um, unfortunately, a little bit philosophical. <laughs> so uh, it goes to the, the, this question of how really time changes, or how history changes, how human societies change. We have a very strong argument from Karl Marx, right? That human societies, human history changes with revolution. Mm -hmm. The revolution is the one which changes human society, really. Right? Well, perhaps, but unfortunately, or fortunately, who knows, uh, in human history, revolutions are very, very rare, especially successful revolutions. Even though yeah. politicians or activists claim sometimes revolutionary words or agendas, they describe what they, describe what they are doing with the word revolution, what they are doing is not complete change, but some recycling process, some, some re remaking, recasting of previous, previous uh, tools and institutions. So this is also, I mean, this whole idea of recycling empire is really about, about a genealogical approach to change, if I may say that. So the past does not disappear in a revolutionary moment, but... Actually, it continues in a changed form. Mm. So we mm. cannot get rid of our past. That's my message. I'm sorry. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that, I mean, I, I don't think we should in a, in, a, in a certain way. I mean, traditions are important and we have a history. Every uh, geographical kind of region has a history or people group has a history that has you know, obviously good and bad parts to it. So you shouldn't forget it. This is this interesting idea of, of it seems, I guess the question I have, you, you said a little bit philosophical, which I agree with is why the need for this is, is there, 
everybody didn't decide at one time we're not going to have empire anymore, right? It it, it slowly kind of happened. Do you think this was technology? Uh, I'm using that very broadly. You know, different changes and advances. Yes, maybe time, but what was it? I guess that you think, um, you know, the idea of empire, as we as you said, you know, in France or in England or whatever. Why now in the state today? I mean, was was it or was it just that whole? Look, there was war, League of Nations, United Nations, and that's what we're going to decide. We're going to just, that's the aftermath of war, that we're not going to do empire. Or I guess what was pushing for so many people at the same time to say, let's do nation states and not empire. We'll still use ideas of empire, but we're just not going to call it that and have it in the same uh, uh, structure. Well, so, I mean, we have to make a distinction between practice and, and what people actually say, okay? so. Mm. In 1919, uh, the uh, politicians of the victorious powers, don't forget, we're talking about the victorious powers who were all empires, France, Mm. Britain, Italy, the United Mm. States of America, were all kinds of imperial formations with colonies or outside uh, Mm -hmm. possessions. Um, in 1919. So they, so in my argument, what they decided is not that they should be nation, they should become nation states. What they decided is that was that the defeated empires who were dismembered, that is the German, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Ottoman empires, especially these empires should be dismembered and in their territories nation states should uh, should be if you want the nation state was the punishment of these mm. empire of these peoples of the defeated peoples in a way the fact that these defeated peoples cannot have empire anymore that that was the in a way empire empire was denied from these people in 1919 of course, uh, the British Empire and the French Empire and the Italian Empire very much continued in the interwar period until the 1950s, as we all know. Mm. Uh, so, even though they said that, well, I don't know, at least the metropolitan cores are, you know, France as a nation state, that French nationalism and British nationalism and so on and so forth. So, the, the core territories, like the metropolitan territories of these empires were picturing themselves and representing themselves as nation-states, but actually they were empires and their political class, their ruling class, did think about themselves and their state and their government as an imperial uh, project Hmm. until the 1950s. And it's very clear. If you go to the documents, it's very clear. Um, This is why we historians characterize this period usually as imperial internationalism these days because we somehow try to get that actually these empires continue. So, I mean, it would be great if what you just said would have been true that a lot of people would have decided that, oh, we we don't need empires anymore. But this is not true, actually. Mm. As I said, the victorious powers decided that everybody else should have nation states and their empires can continue just in a different form. Mm-hmm. 
So that's uh, and that's a very important issue because it means that um, these imperial projects, these imperial toolboxes of governance, they continued very, very much until until recently, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's um, a great it's a great point. Yeah, it's 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 a fabulous point. I think it's a it's very it's very instructive of understanding still this kind of makeup of the world, right? Even though we have nation states, but you're, you're, this concept of recycling empire, I get you know, still persists. Can you tell me about sovereignty, right? And there's this sovereignty is an interesting concept, and we've sort of been talking about it, I guess. But do you, people use the word sovereignty as a type of independence or freedom, but how are there sovereign local states? And then uh, second to that, where do we get Islam and monarchy after the fall of the, the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, yeah. So again, we are we are talking about the concepts again. So yeah. So instead of the nation state, I use this term local state, mm-hmm. and I use it not only for the post-Ottoman uh, states like the Arab countries, but I also use it for the post-Habsburg states like Yugoslavia or Hungary or Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps we can use it even for uh, post-war Germany as well, before Hitler. Uh, so that these societies are all successor societies to empires. And, and here is the answer to your first question. And they are struggling with the fact that the victorious allied powers said that, okay, everybody is sovereign now. You are in the League of Nations. You can be in the League of Nations. Well, to the Arabs, they, they said that after a while, you can be in the League of Nations, not, not immediately. All right? Uh, uh, so they implicitly acknowledged at least the sovereignty of new Arab governments, uh, meaning... With, as a, I mean, meaning that in theory they should be independent and equal and they should have, for instance, foreign representation and free to make economic decisions and so on and so forth. But this was not the case at all. So the, the post-war situation was really tricky because just like every post-war situation, actually, uh, the, victor, the victors, they, they had to... Uh, hide a little bit that they actually dominate these territories, but in a new way. So it's no more colonization. They cannot colonize. I mean, apart from Zionist colonization in Palestine, mm-hmm. right? There was no, well, there was the Italian colonization of Algeria. Uh, but apart from these two cases, actually, there was no new, at least in the Arab territories, no new settler colonial projects, mm. right? So it's, it's no, so colonization is no more really uh, acceptable, at least in the interwar period, apart from, as I said, Palestine and, and uh, the Italian territories. On the other hand, uh, for instance, in Syria or in Iraq, uh, the French and the British wanted to continue their domination. So what to do? What they did is that they created governments together with other post-Ottoman Arab uh, notables or peoples who were interested in, in, in government and partly who, you want to call them, collaborated 
with uh, with these um, European um, administrators, and they acknowledge certain attributes of sovereignty. So, um, let's say the Syrian government could issue their own land survey, land taxation, right? Mm. Land proper, property registration is usually a, an important uh, issue for a government sovereignty, that you are sovereign on your territory, right? That only you can define who is a, who has property and who has not property, right? Uh, you, that these governments could educate or adjudicate over their subjects, hmm. right? That it's also a very part, important part of national sovereignty that, that the government only, only, I mean, only one government can, can, uh, and take uh, 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 their their subjects, their citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for instance, they they could not have a representation abroad. There was no Syrian embassy in this period outside of Syria. Uh, also, their economic decisions were very very limited for loans or for infrastructure development or whatever. Even the currency issue was very contested. So they were sovereign, if you want. But they were uh, not independent. Uh, and actually, this situation continued uh, until the 1950s in some, in some territories. And actually, we can even imagine this idea of sovereignty that it, it is a process. Hmm. And at least in the Arab cases, it starts from, let's say, 1919, and it continues until the 1950s. So more and more attributes more and more uh, more and more uh, uh, features of what we usually define as fully sovereign state uh, are acquired by these governments but gradually only through a lot of struggle and a lot of uh... so this is what i mean on sovereign local states now back to dynasty and um, and monarchy and religion Mm-hmm. Like this is the uh, this is this is where we can very clearly see the previous imperial order uh, being recasted in these new small states. So, if you want, if you were in the 1920s a Syrian politician, uh, let's say you were uh, and you were not uh, too young, an older politician. Kavya, just continue, just think about yourself as an old politician. Mm-hmm. You were trained in Istanbul, in the center of your previous empire. Mm-hmm. In a um, good case, you spoke also Turkish and Arabic. Very likely, you served in the imperial administration at a high level, right? Uh, you had money. You had a social status in the in your own empire. You. Perhaps you were loyal to the sultan, perhaps you were not, but you were more or less a, an integral part of the empire. Your family members um, commuted between, let's say, uh, Jerusalem and, and Damascus freely because that was just part of the same province. Uh, and the eastern Mediterranean was an Ottoman lake, right? So you went from Alexandria to Beirut without a passport. And so on and so forth. So you had you you enjoyed in a way this, because well, there was a lot of misery at the time. But you could enjoy t- 
the uh, benefits of being in the Ottoman Empire as an educated Arab bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. And then after the war, after the first world war, suddenly you found yourself in this situation that you have to participate in, a, in building a nation state. Mm-hmm. This is what the League of Nations, this is what the victorious powers want. And second, this nation state must be very limited. And third, it is actually ruled over by France in the so-called mandate, the French mandate system. So what, what, what can you do? I mean, you can, of course, fight. And some started to fight. To fight so that we, we usually talk about a long First World War in these regions now. So up to the end of the 1920s, we can think about resistance uh, to this situation as part of the practically the last Ottoman army units uh, transform themselves in the Arab territories, if you want. So you, you can fight, you can engage with the occupiers and try to do something uh, for the benefit of your population. And here comes the thing that uh, you are not a revo- Marxist revolutionary. Right? So you, you, your first question is how to preserve the previous imperial order in the new little polity that you have, mm-hmm. the social order and the constitutional order. So, I mean, you are not a religious person, but you acknowledge that, well, some sort of religion or some sort of role religion must play in the new state. First of all, because your previous one was also a caliphate, right? The Ottoman Sultan was the caliph of all Sunni Muslims. So somehow, and your people in Damascus and in larger Syria are actually very colorful. So there are many Christians, also Jews, but mostly you have Muslims and practicing Muslims who go to the Sharia court, who go to pray, and who also have these religious scholars who are very uh, influential and very outspoken. They, every Friday they spoke in the mosque, and they advocate for religion. So you have to somehow cope with this imperial, actually, diversity in this very small new state. So what you do is that you try to bring in previous imperial political institutions as the new constitutional order. Hmm. And in, in this, the victorious empires, France, for instance, would agree with you. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. We don't want a new Soviet Union here in Syria. Hmm. We want, yeah, just bring, and what is, what is the political institution for the managing diversity in an empire to bring to bring a king, to bring a monarch, to make a monarch. Mm-hmm. It is good for the religious scholars, although there is nothing in Islam that would exclude Islamic Muslim Republic, as we know very well by now. But, um, I mean, they can say that, okay, at least uh, an imam of the whole community, imam means the leader of the community, right? Imam of the whole community is the king, actually, so the monarch. Uh, stability of the political system can be uh, perhaps uh, assured by dynastic inheritance, right? That's a stable system. At least it's framed as a stable system. 
Uh, and uh, the the uh, and France is happy because they got used to deal with monarchs. They are okay with subordinated uh, monarchs. It's a typical imperial outsourcing certain attributes of sovereignty, uh, uh, layered sovereignty we call it. And then and then um, so that's it. So that's the new uh, constitutional framework. And actually, this is what happened uh, the, in 1919, 1920. Immediately in Damascus, this is what happened. There was a short-lived Syrian kingdom. Hmm. You, you seems to be that you're describing something you talk about in the book is this after empires, specifically the Ottoman Empire, that <clears throat> it wasn't governance per se, as you're kind of describing there at the end there, but more of this political order. Right. So how how do you define political order? And, you know, how do you have these two thoughts? Again, you, you, I think you were talking about some of it there w- with this uh, organizational and constitutional uh, dimensions here. So how, how do we look at this political order in the kind of the landscape 1920 after, uh, uh, you know, uh, the war and the fall of the empire? Yeah, so one, one benefit, let me just start with the organizational aspect because that's the easiest. Mm-hmm. So the um, one benefit of, start, of restarting the history of the 20th century and the last 100 years from the, uh, from the world of empires and not from the world of revolutions or nationalism is that one can see world history as a, that, uh, that Actually, the question is not um, the nation state, but the question is how empires would transform themselves into different type of big organizations. And one way to do that is to think in terms of federations. That is very familiar to an American uh, listener, right? That uh, federation, the federational form, is a, is a good way to have local states, which have some sort of local autonomy, right? But having a, a metropole, well, in the U.S., in Washington, D.C., right, mm-hmm. which defines, for instance, foreign policy uh, together, and, um, and I mean, there are all kinds of federations and confederations and whatnot, but um, this is a, so this is one way to think about also the Middle East, mm. that one way to think about how, how this imperial transformation led again and again to the idea of Arab federations in the region up to the 1970s, actually. That. And after, until today, I mean, today there is, of course, a new idea about federations, right, in, in the Arab world, especially, I mean, one, actually, it's an old idea, for instance, for the Palestine-Israel conflict, that it should be some type of federation. Actually, this is the, I would say this is the original idea, right, the 1947 partition of the United Nations of Palestine into a state of Israel and a state of Palestine, which was never established was a, was a federation. These were, these were not supposed to be actually sovereign states by themselves, but they were supposed to cre- uh, be in a, in a federative union, some sort of federative union. And some politicians today, um, 
uh, also suggest this as a solution, uh, as, a, as an economic union, for instance, for uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict. Anyway, so, the, the, and I think, uh, so this is the organizational aspect of, of, and the advantage of the, of restarting the 20th century history from the imperial point of view as a, as a real analytical category, like the real, so how empires really actually work, how imperial politicians wanted to transform the empire into federations. Of course, the most successful such transformation that we know is the British Commonwealth, mm-hmm. which exists until today. So the British very easily, well, not very easily, but, but they successfully transformed some of their possessions into a loose federation, the Commonwealth, right? With Canada and Austria, mm-hmm. Australia are still being part of it. Yeah. Um, right? Uh, the French really tried this the same in Africa to make an African federation as uh, Fred Cooper wrote a wonderful book about it, um, and so on and so forth. So federation is always an alternative to the nation state in, in, in the 20th century. Now, as to the political order itself, that, that concerns the constitutional arrangement, right? To make it simple, republic or monarchy, right? Uh, I mean on the political order a an assemblage of ideas with which people can uh, identify with and acknowledge, more or less acknowledge, a ruling central bureaucracy. Very simple. How is that, how is so, that different from governance, though? You make a distinction between them. Yeah, because governance is the actual the practices. So governance are the mm. practices that... When I was, Citizenship or mm. uh, border control or things like this. That that mm. this is what I mean on governance. Mm. The political order is something more in the realm of ideas. Ah. Is um, it is it is um, it is something. It is a con- like it's a, the constitutional order if you want, but I it's the deep. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, as I said, there are even cultural concepts here that mm. then give uh, sustain, sub, substance to to constitutional ideas. Um, and so here, this is this is why. Uh, I mean, I, I chose. So my colleagues often and rightly so really follow the ideas of republicanism and democracy in the Middle East which are very important to understand uh, resistance and uh, struggle. But I think it's also important to understand uh, ideas which are not democratic or not, not the same democratic ideas that as, as, as in other democracies, for instance, the American democracies, but other type of democracies. Um, mm-hmm. So and this is why I chose the idea of the monarchy as a... Um, and, and this is what I follow throughout the book um, as the defining idea of the political order that uh, many actually want in federations. I must also say that I can give you immediately also a contemporary example before, before you sure. ask me that, okay, why is it this important today? And <laughs> of course, the, 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 the Muslim monarchical federation today, which is, uh, uh, is quite successful, 
is the United Arab Emirates, for instance. It's a typical uh, post-imperial polity, which has monarchs, uh, and uh, it's a federation, and its religion is important, and so on and so forth. Mm. Actually, Saudi Arabia also wanted to become, I mean, there was a time when it was also a fed, more federative organization than today. So talk to us about these constitutional conventions, right? And you, 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 how these, these fictions are more concerned with are you, cultural... Are you really want, do you really I, want to go there? I, I because do, it's, it's, just, very, it's very abstract. It just, just a little bit. Just, I know it is, it is a little in the weeds, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this because there were monarchies that used these fictions for a long time, and I'm wondering... What is the ripple effect to modern day, right? So if they're using this for a while and then they don't, why and, and what happened there? Or, or are they still using some version of it? So again, it's a little in the weeds, but so just give us the kind of 30,000 foot view of it. Yeah, so I mean, so we usually think about Democracy as a nation state, right, is somehow belonging together. Right? Democracy and nation state yeah. belonging together. Uh, even some would, some, there was at least one moment, uh, uh, and still today there are people who say that also, yeah, the republican form is the real modern mm-hmm. form of statehood, right? And that, that is what modernity is, and all these uh, monarchies, for instance, are not uh, modern, simply. Now, the, so if from a constitutional theory point of view, of course, every such uh, idea is a, is a fiction, right? Um, so religion uh, is a fiction. Um, God's rule is a fiction. Uh, but it is, uh, the people's rule is also a fiction. Yeah. And democracy is also a fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the monarch is also a fiction. So these are all just ideas that uh, we 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 hope. Peop- I mean, groups are advocating that one or the other idea is better accepted by a large number of people in the given country, and um, so they would, as I said, they would uh, identify with these ideas more. And therefore, the constitutional order, these constitutional fictions, uh, in which these constitutional fictions uh, operate, uh, would be more stable, would be more, uh, would be more legitimate. If you, want. I try to avoid this word legitimate, but I have to say so legitimate. So I don't know. In the U.S., seemingly a lot of people accept uh, the idea of uh, republican that the U.S. should be a rep- perhaps not. I mean, there was a moment in the late 18th century when it was not that clear, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of American monarchists mm-hmm. as well, not, mm-hmm. not necessarily partisans of the British crown, but to make an American uh, yeah. Yeah. monarchy. Mm-hmm. Perhaps there are some people even today who would <laughs> like to see an American king in, uh, a, a king, a king in Washington, D.C. I'm sure so, there are some people like that. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, um, yeah, and in some other places. So uh, this, this, this. Um, there are traditions. There are uh, there are groups which advocate for for this constitutional, for the monarchical constitutional fiction. 
uh, as I said, whose matter is only always cultural. So there is some cultural narrative behind it, of course, if it's religion, then the religious texts. Yep. If it's the monarchy, it's often the monarch's own story, right? Is there a hero story or some type of uh, <clears throat> chosen one story? Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all, always narrative. They, they belong to a narrative and they try to influence the masses through these, through these narratives. Yeah, that's, that's the... Well, I mean, think, think about it in this way. I mean, at least people here in the United States still have this obsession with the royal family in England, right? Where it's not even our country anymore. And then people, and look, there are people in the United Kingdom that want it done away with. It's antiquated. We want to just be fully, we're giving all of our, you know, how many pounds a year to, to the, to the state, to the, to the, to the, the family, the royal family. But there's still a lot of people that really, really, really like it. And even people outside of, you know, the United Kingdom that really like it and they have this appeal to it. So, I mean, it, it is a, I find that these, these fictions are things that are a type of adhesive that m- keep big masses of people together. Otherwise, it would be splintered into all of these different factions. And, and you know, if you have just, and, and I think eventually it could just disintegrate into mob rule. Everyone's doing their own thing and everyone's fighting with each other. And so I think there are, there's a, maybe a healthy balance of some of those things, keeping things together, whether it's. Uh, a monarchy state, or whether it's a, a type of nationalism, or whether that we 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 devise all of these, as you say, fictions, as a as a way of you know gluing big groups of people together. I mean, that's yeah. how I see it. So. Yeah, yeah, no, no, this is. I mean, this is exactly this last sentence is exactly correct. I personally don't know what is, and I, I'm not a Norman, I'm not a political scientist. I'm just a humble historian. So I, this is not a book which prescribe suggestions to anything and sure. to anybody. Sure. I don't say what is good for the people and what is bad for the people. Uh, but I described it in the past. Some groups thought that, let's say, monarchy is a good idea to, to keep Islam in, uh, in Syria, let's say, and others thought differently. Yeah. Um, so, so it is, well, and back to the British royal family, I mean, they are the most successful in in their, uh, how to say, in their image uh, making. So they are really, really yeah. successful, right? Um, their their, their um, propaganda works very well. <laughs> yeah, they, they, are, they are very successful. And, and I mean, so this is why I call them constitutional fictions, because we should not forget, especially in Britain, which does not have a Britain constitution, by the way, uh, unlike other more modern Arab monarchies, which do have a written constitution, or some type of written constitution. So the, the, the constitutional fictions, monarchs' constitutional fictions, uh, do have a legal role. They are very important in an order of things. They are really uh, uh, functioning not only as, uh, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not only about drinking wine in the Buckingham Palace. <laughs> but it, they they do have they do have a, a legal role, a very constitutional roles in in uh, in functioning of the parliament, yeah. in the final judgment of certain cases. So they do glue, as you said, it is a good word. They do glue together a certain type of order, and one can decide whether you want that order or not. But mm-hmm. this is how they function. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, exactly. I mean, and there's, it's interesting, uh, I think with the, the Queen's death last, last year, I think it was, uh, earlier this year, whenever it was, you know, people have been trying to, 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 to have that conversation again, I think in the United Kingdom, you know, what do we do with this? How long do we keep this? You know, and so, you know, it's an interesting discussion. Well, it's in, an ongoing debate in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a very fascinating. So, so let's talk about, uh, kind of go back to sovereignty. So you talk about, uh, this one bit in the book about the, the British involvement with Egypt uh, and the Ottomans in the early 20th century. Yeah. And that there were these four types of contractual sovereignty and what that looked like. So just tell us about that bit of it, and then we can, uh, we can spend a, a bulk of time in, uh, in Syria, because I know that that's a, that's a big part of the book. So just tell us a little bit with the British and the Egyptians and the Ottomans in the early 20th century. Yeah, so that's an interesting triangle. Um, yeah, it's a it's a case of overlapping empires in a in a region. Mm -hmm. right? That Egypt belonged to the Ottoman Empire. It, it in the nineteenth century it created actually a kind of autonomous Muslim princely state. It was called the Khedive, so called Khedivate mm -hmm. at the time, and uh, and then uh, after eighteen eighty two, the British Empire arrived and occupied the region. But without uh, cutting it from the Ottoman umbrella. Mm. So between 1882 and the First World Wars, around 30 years, uh, in Egypt there were two empires actually present: the Ottomans mm. and the and the British simultaneously. Uh, and then in the First World War, the British cut finally uh, of Egypt, uh, cut Egypt out of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and then, uh, and then there was a huge question: what to do with Egypt? That was a big question in British imperial circles. Because why? Because Egypt is strategically so important for the British Empire because of the Suez Canal, right? It's the short route to India. Before, of course, we are talking about before the age of the airplane, right? Right. So, so when you are sitting in London and you rule Bombay then you must have the Suez Canal because it it's just shortens mm -hmm. the, the way so, so much better. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's a world trade route and whatnot. Uh, so, strategically speaking, for the British, they, they just they, they said we, we must keep Egypt or at least the Suez Canal. Actually, there was also a plan in 1919 that they make a state out of the Suez Canal that would have been a Suez Canal state. So, so uh, kind of, kind of, kind of like, a, like how we have, well, maybe not exactly the same, but like a, like a Monaco or a Singapore or something like, something like this. It's a very, yeah, like, yeah, like, uh, but it would have been just a, it wouldn't, it wouldn't been a city state. It would have been a, a canal, canal state or a <laughs> channel state. Or yeah, a, that's, that's I would to call it. <laughs> uh, but that was just a, just a quick idea, and. Um, but then it was still, I mean, this is how we started, that 1919 is the moment when the victorious empires, although they continued their empires, they, they actually declared publicly that colonization is, an, is not really good anymore. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of imperialism is getting, was getting less and less attractive to masses. Mm -hmm. So the question was what to do with Egypt? because. On the one hand, yes, the British wanted to keep it, 
On the other hand, it was very expensive to keep it, mm. right? So they didn't want to create an annexation because then that would have been uh, a lot of issues from citizenship, for instance, would then would have been uh, Egypt becoming a British territory would have meant Egyptians becoming British citizens and so on and so forth. Uh, so what they did is at the end, they recognized its independence, actually. So it's very quickly in 1922 came this idea. Uh, and they stayed <laughs> in Egypt. So through uh, military occupation. So if you want, the, the, the British presence in Egypt is the first experiment with a very long military occupation in the Middle East. Uh, by, a, by a Western power uh, that the United States uh, also experimented with in Iraq, mm. right? To, not to, of course, not to annex something, but to rule it through military occupation in one way or another, recognizing its independence. Yeah, of course, it's a sovereign state. Yeah, it's a sovereign government. But we just still rule the strategic locations and so on and so forth for, for whatever reason. Mm. So. So the British uh, Egypt Ottoman nexus is, uh, let's say, between the 1880s and the 1950s, is um, is a very interesting uh, story about all these imperial and post-imperial experiments of, of rule and governance, mm. and of course they continued the previous Ottoman local dynasty. So there was an Egyptian king and. So on and so forth. Egypt became, of course, one of the strongest monarchy mm-hmm. in the interwar period. Yeah. So just to to kind of close the loop, you, you mentioned Egypt later in the book. So just to kind of, since we're on it, to, to close it yeah. here, you talk about Islamic popular sovereignty in post-Ottoman Egypt, and then that you know you talk about the 1923 Egyptian Constitution as this counter-revolutionary thing, and then how we finally get the Brotherhood in in the 50s. So just kind of finish that story or or close it a little bit. Of, yeah. What happened with Egypt kind of continuing in the, into the mid-20th century? Yeah, so in Egypt, Egypt is perhaps the place where the most articulate this discussion about um, the political order of, of these new local states, so, mm-hmm. and especially the question of religion. Yeah. Um, um, there is also a discussion, I mean, there are several discussions, but I mean, meaning topically different. But there's also a discussion in the middle of the 1920s about the caliphate. Uh, and the Egyptian king, uh, King Fuad, was extremely interested in actually becoming perhaps a caliph, mm. uh, the, new, the new caliph of Islam after the Ottoman Sultan was gone. Uh, so there is that as well in Egypt. Egypt is a, was also, and still is, a regional power. So it was also interested in perhaps ruling Mecca and Medina, the holy places, mm-hmm. before or during the Saudi occupation. It also happened. And the, these things happen at the same. So the same, same moment, Egypt is formed in the 1920s as a new state. Saudi Arabia is getting formed, and both of them are under the British umbrella, but also opposing to each other. So anyway, so it's a very complex problem. But mm-hmm. 
Uh, this is also indeed the time when groups in Egypt advocate for a new Islam and new Islams, new Islamic modernity. There is a total transformation in Islamic ideology. Um, actually, it's, there is a very articulate... So we always think about uh, Muslim Republic as associated with Iran, right? But actually the ideological origins of, of this idea that uh, a, a Muslim state can be a, a republic of the religious scholars that the religious scholars are the ones who should actually be the government. This starts in in Egypt in the 1920s, it's very clear. And it's a kind of counter, it's a threat to the king Mm. that the religious scholars said, hey, actually, according to Islamic terms, we we as a body, as a corporate body, we can be also the imam. Not only one person can be an imam, the imam can be a corporate person. It's a little bit of a... Anyway, and in it, this is also the moment in the 1930s when uh, a type of middle-class Islamism starts, and this is the Muslim Brotherhood, who are very successful and very, become very quickly popular in the country because they go grassroots to the workers, to, uh, to small bureaucrats. They are really reaching out to to a large segment of society. And uh, surprisingly, in the 19, late 1930s, when uh, the first time they became very, very powerful, they actually offered the loyalty to the king, the Egyptian king. Hmm. And they say that, well, okay, let's create a proper Islamic state. And we accept you as, 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 the, as the king of, of this new, as the Muslim king of this new state, as the Muslim ruler. Um, now, of course, whether this was serious or not, we, we don't know, but I mean, the, the, the Brazilian brother as an organization, uh, was not disloyal to the, to the institution of the monarchy until the end of the second world war. And then, then things changed and then they switched their allegiance to, uh, to the, to the pre-officers and then to the Republic. And then again came a, a clash between the military and the Ikhwan. And that is what we see until today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Egypt's very fascinating, uh, especially in, in the 20th century and 21st century. It's quite, quite interesting. Uh, and as you say, they become a kind of, uh, you know, big player in, in the region, you know, post-empire. So, so let's talk about Syria. Syria is... I mean, just as fascinating, super complex, very rich history. You talk about in different parts throughout the book, these, uh, you had a chapter on these kind of Ottoman uh, genealogical claims, which was really interesting. You talk about utopian federalism, uh, all of these different things. Um, how, tell us how, how does the Syrian kingdom and Syria itself, how does it emerge from you know this there's still some british uh play here but coming out of a a, a post ottoman empire how do how do we see these these aspects of the syrian kingdom and state uh, emerging uh, uh post ottoman period okay so so there are two ways to tell this story one way is to tell this story from the point of view of 
the British and the French empires. Right, and then, and then you can say that, well, they wanted to partition the Ottoman Empire, they wanted to partition, traditionally speaking, Syria. Syria, in Arabic, we call Bilad al-Sham, so what is today Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and the state of Syria, together. This large region, this whole large region is called in Arabic Bilad al-Sham, the, the Sham region. Mm-hmm. in which people speak the same dialect, more or less, of Arabic, and eat more or less the same thing, and they are quite distinct from, let's say, the Arabian regions and dialects and, and from the Egyptian one and from the Iraqi one. So they do have some regional identity until today, despite the is, new is, nation states. On that, is... Geographically, there's this region, but are there distinct people groups within this region? So different ethnicities, different people groups, or is it more or less a, a type of similar people group in, in more modern terms? How do we think of it that way? Well, I mean, of course, the, the, I mean, of course, this is a very diverse region, ethnically speaking and religiously speaking. So there are Christians, Jews, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, all kinds of Muslims, like Shia Muslims, Sunni Muslims, mm-hmm. I hope the listener know these distinction, and then smaller yes. sects, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So, um, so this is a very diverse region, but, uh, but the majority are claiming to be Arabs or are easily identifiable as Arabs. Um, you know, this is not something uh, unique. Uh, <laughs> think about the United Nations. <laughs> You know, the, the, the U.S., right? I mean, there are so many ethnically and religious, and most of the people say that, well, I'm an American citizen and I'm American, and so, mm-hmm. and they speak mostly in English, usually. So, so, I mean, this is a typical, actually, post-imperial state of affairs, that there are all these diverse peoples, and, uh, and that they have some overarching glue and Often it's a nationalism or, mm-hmm. or, or, or a political fiction or constitutional fiction, a monarch. Anyway, so go, going back mm-hmm. to Syria, yeah. So there is this big region with, with various claims. I think the listeners know all these claims. The Zionist claim, like the part of Palestine, uh, uh, the Lebanese, the Lebanese Maronite church claims often... So it's a it's a Christian denomination, right? They they often claim Lebanon, small Lebanon, as as their as a Christian state until today, uh, um, and so there are all kinds of claims on these on these territories, and not to talk about the status of Jerusalem, which is always a very very contested problem, but yeah. which is in itself a very diverse city and. Let's not go there at the moment. <laughs> right. um, so, so, so there is there is this there is this very complex region, uh, and it is just occupied by the Allied powers in 1918. It is a relatively a peaceful occupation. There's not not a lot of war, not, not a lot of actual fight. Mm. There's some there is some fighting, but it is nothing compared to uh, to what's happening in Western Europe. So. Uh, and most of the people die, most of the Arab, most of the Syrians in these regions die during the war because of famine. 
because there is a blockade and so it's not, not because of the war itself, not because of the fighting itself. So anyway, so there's an occupation and part of the occupation is a group of Arabs coming from Mecca who are the allies of the French and the British and they claim an Arab kingdom. Their leader is a former Ottoman uh, uh, notable who is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. Today, there are around 10 million descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. There are people with uh, ID cards that I am the descendant mm-hmm. of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. It really exists. Yeah, the yeah, the yeah, Jordanian yeah. king, Jordanian yeah, yeah, yeah. king is, is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. I had a, so, I had a, I had a, I had a conversation with, with, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on it. Is it Toby, Toby Matheson. And we were talking yeah. about this, about he, he wrote a very nice book on all of this. And we talked a little bit about this, like there's legitimate to this day, like cards that people have, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll meet the cab driver and he'll have the card that says I'm a descendant or it's a whole thing of, of, of where that splits and who, who has the. The rights to say that and doesn't it's it's a very interesting uh, kind of thing there <laughs> yeah i mean we shouldn't make a, a big fuss of it although the jordanian king does make a big fuss mm-hmm. of it that he's yeah, a descendant yeah. of the yeah. prophet Muhammad. so anyway and so the Jord- the current jordanians king's great great grandfather was the one who allied actually with the british and the french and the british uh, allowed them to occupy Damascus. Mm. So actually, Damascus was occupied by Arabs from Mm. Arabia Mm. uh, as part of the Allied conquest of the Ottoman Empire. And this is how this this whole idea of the Syrian kingdom came out, that the local Ottoman Arabs were not very happy by this, they didn't want to live in an in a new Arab empire yeah. of the of the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. They were, if you want, much more modern or more secular or more cosmopolitan uh, or, or or whatever. What, 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 whatever you can call it. Right. Uh, they they didn't want this. They 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 wanted to have a modern state. Or uh, some of them were actually republican. Uh, and so that was the compromise, that was one compromise during this time that, okay, let's have a Syrian kingdom, let's make one of the sons, Faisal, of this uh, descendant of the Prophet Muhammad into a king. That was the king of Damascus, in Damascus. And let's create um, a monarchical federation, mm-hmm. a kind of light Muslim monarchical federation. A regional one, so uh, in in the region, so Lebanon would be part of it. Palestine would be part of it. What is today Jordan would be part of it, and of course uh, Aleppo and Damascus would have been part of it. And there were even plans that perhaps, perhaps, this kingdom in 1920, in the spring of 1920, would have entered into a confederation with the new Turkish state. Mm. So a kind of new Ottoman Empire, just it wouldn't be Ottoman now, but it would have been a Turco-Arab Federation, a Turkish-Arab Federation. Uh, I mean, there were all these ideas, and actually they even discussed some once very seriously 
So this was the this was an idea, but of course this was this this I mean the the political uh, territory that this Syrian kingdom claimed went directly against the plans of France and Britain about partition. Right? They um, actually they thought that what is Syria should have become part of the French zone, and what is Palestine should become part of the British zone, and of course the British then promised Palestine to the Zionists. So this, this, I mean, this whole idea of this federative grand Syrian kingdom with, uh, with uh, the Muslim king, with the descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, was really opposed by France, especially, I must say. The, the British would have been okay with it because, because they thought that actually the uh, Faisal, mm-hmm. so this new king, would have been their man. This is, I don't know if you or any of the listeners ever, have, have you ever watched uh, this old British movie, Lawrence of Arabia? Oh, it's one of my the favorite films. Uh, what a very, very yeah. Peter O'Toole, very, yeah. very, uh, very uh, uh, blue eye, yes. white British man going in the desert with the Bedouins and fighting yeah. against yeah, the Ottomans. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah, is yeah. the story of I mean, this is the British portrayal of the story which leads to the Syrian kingdom. And indeed, actually, Lawrence uh, was indeed a historical personality. And Lawrence was very important, very instrumental mm-hmm. in lobbying for this, for this Syrian kingdom and for Faisal. So, um, yeah, but the French didn't accept it finally. And so they just uh, entered in the summer of 1920 Damascus and kicked out Faisal. Uh, so this is how the Syrian king, the first, very first Syrian experiment with kingship ended. Uh, it was a very short-lived, but a very, very complex and interesting. Um, yeah, so that's and, about the Syrian king. Yeah, so let's, let's uh, bridge the gap here. Uh, so two, two things here. So generally, so this is coming out of, the Ottoman Empire. So how does understanding, not that you have to explain it, but just generally understanding Ottoman legal bureaucracy important for the kingdom at first? And then maybe more specifically, if you want, there was this interesting bit in the book that you talked about the 28 Constitution of Syria as this disagreement between secular nationalists and Muslim activists and former Ottomans. So just maybe that can be as an example of how we see the kind of legal bureaucracy from you know a post-Ottoman uh, period. Yeah, I mean, what is at stake is is as I said, it's always the, the question of how the previous imperial order would continue, and this is true also in the case of the legal institutions. In this case, the, the late Ottoman Empire had a state court system, if you want, a civil court system, and they had a Sharia court system, a Sharia court system. So two parallel systems, more or less by the 1910s, the authority of the two types of courts uh, were very clearly demarcated, and the Sharia court was really just uh, reduced to family law, so marriage, uh, inheritance, divorce, and so on and so forth. As we all know, marriage and divorce and inheritance are the three things which really define us a lot. So uh, it it is important if you have to go to the Muslim judge for these things. 
um, and not to the uh, state uh, judge. But well, no, the Muslim judge was also a state judge, but like the civil judge, let's say. So um, this was a whole question of, for instance, uh, the continuity of the Sharia courts in the interwar period. And in the constitutional debate, although it didn't come up directly, but that was at stake. Uh, how Islam would feature in the new constitution? Where, where, where would you put Islam in the new constitution? That is how all these Sharia courts and the everyday life of people uh, bounded by, by Sharia uh, would continue in, in, a new, in a new constitutional order. Uh, and so there were these many visions, and um, there was a group of very secular republicanists who really didn't want to hear about it. And there was the other group of Muslim activists who said, well, actually, we, we, we have to have an Islamic state or some sort of Islam uh, acknowledgement of Islam in the, in the constitution. And then this is why they devised finally the, this idea that, the pre okay, let's have a republic, let's have a president, but the president must be a Muslim always. And then the laws of Sharia should be respected in the republic. So, and, and the Sharia courts continued until the 1950s. Uh, very much. Actually, no, so, well, actually in Syria, in Syria until today. Hmm. Uh, divorce and marriage is... is educated by a Muslim judge. So to so tell us, one of the, the, the last few questions I have here is, is, is so bring us to present day, obviously. So your book doesn't talk about present day directly uh, of sorts, uh, but there's impact, obviously. How does this post-Ottoman period uh, of, of how things are done with these kind of uh, local states, how does that impact current geopolitical themes at present now again i know you're not political theorists and all that but you know obviously people listening will will look to you know the news and they'll look at the world now and they'll say well syria has a lot of issues obviously there's you know the, the bath party and there's a, a conflict that's been there for 12 13 years it's you know absolutely you know destructive and, and terrible uh, i've talked about that a bit here on, on the podcast you know, people will look at all the other different uh, places and what's going on in, in Arabia at the moment. So obviously, Egypt has a pretty uh, convoluted history in recent times. So how does, how do we, what do you think uh, uh, is the kind of ripple effect of, okay, we've been doing these kind of local states post-Ottoman for plus or minus 100 years, and here we are, um, in current day with these challenges, what do you think is that kind of the echoes of that, I guess? So wait, 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 let, let me just make a one, one clarification. So the, Please. so I would say that the local states, uh, and or transform themselves in the 1950s, mm. uh, and some continuous local state, meaning that they, they have very serious, uh, for instance, Saudi Arabia, so very serious um, engagement with religion as a constitutional feature and so on and so forth. And other states try to, uh, try to nationalize themselves often through force and violence. Wow. The 1950s and 1960s are big moments of Arab nationalism. This is a very big moment of Arab nationalism and secular nationalism, very importantly. Mm -hmm. uh, the Palestinian resistance is also 
uh, a secular nationalist resistance in the beginning, mm. very much. So mm. today's Hamas is a very new phenomenon. Don't forget, it's mm-hmm. from the nineties actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, from the eight, from the late eighties. So uh, the first experiment with political resistance is is secular nationalism. So what we have today is a, is a much more complex picture than we had, let's say, in, in the 1940s, of course. So we have uh, a range of, of, uh, of states and statehoods. But what I would like to talk to first and perhaps last is that um, there's a deeper issue here, right? And that deeper issue was posed, for instance, by this uh, terrorist group called the Islamic State, mm-hmm. right? Who, I mean, they gave themselves various names and finally yeah. it was the Islamic State, ISIS or ISIL or Daesh or whatever we call it. Right. Right. Um, and if we, I know it sounds horrible to a lot of people, but for a moment, let's look at them as a, Utopian religious group, sure, which want to establish a state, mm-hmm. and so one question is, and this is not the they are of course this is an extreme example, but I'm saying this exactly because this is an extreme example. Mm-hmm. There are other groups in the world who claim statehood and independence and government and acknowledgement based on religion and not on the nation. Whenever I talk to political scientists about this, some of them say, oh, oh, this is horrible. Are you really suggesting that we should acknowledge the statehood of religious groups? That's impossible in the current international order. We cannot, we cannot do that. Of course, this is not what I'm suggesting. But I pose the question that this is what is happening. Mm. That there is a return of religion as a utopian enterprise. And there are these groups which are not afraid to use extreme violence to create their own state. Mm. And what they want is attention. Terrorism is a way to catch attention, sorry, to say. Uh, uh, so they want attention to, for the world order to heed their demands. Now, we, we shouldn't heed their demands, of course, but this is what uh, this whole question about post-empire and religion and constitutional fiction and so on. I mean, all these apparatus that I'm moving here is about these types of questions, that this is not the first time when we have actually this moment. The, the 1920s is indeed a moment when groups think about religion still as a post-imperial feature, actually, but as, as, as on the similar way as, as the nation. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Um, so um, the Afga- Afghanistan, what's happening right now in Afghanistan, however horrible it sounds to, to our ears, it is an experiment with creating a religious state, 
which is actually also a nationalist one. One cannot deny that the Afghans really, these are Afghans who are proposing also being Afghan as one of their legitimate uh, features in government. But at the same time, they say that the Quran should be the constitution, or at least the principles of the Quran should be in the constitution. And then they have these extreme measures that girls shouldn't go to school and whatnot. So this is, this is happening in the world. So I'm not a political theorist, and I'm certainly not a politician. Uh, but I think we, we, these discussions should happen. And we should be very attentive. We should listen to these, um, these world phenomena. I'm actually personally, if you ask me, I personally oppose this. I really don't want uh, a religion. I'm, I'm, a very, uh, <laughs> I'm a very anarchist, secularist person. But, uh, uh, if, uh, but how to say, this is, this is how the world is, this is what's happening now in the world. Yeah. So we have to pay attention. And I think my book is, uh, it brings, uh, brings up these questions from the past, but I think the questions are relevant today very much. Um, uh, it's, it's a good occasion to discuss, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, this question of whether we heed to religious groups' uh, demands for, for state, for, for a territorial state or not, or what, 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 what kind of new world order emerging now, right now after the end of the American hegemon? So I think these are, um, these are quite important issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would, I would absolutely agree with you. Well, the, the book is Modern Arab Kingship, Remaking the Ottoman Political Order in the Interwar Middle East. Again, it's out through Princeton. Um, Adam, this was absolutely fantastic. I, I, I loved your book. I love what's in there. Uh, this was such a uh, rich conversation. I loved all of the details we got into it. I love all the, it's you know, such a great way of kind of zooming in and zooming out with really complex uh, kind of issues historically and even more presently. So it's just uh, been such a, a wonderful time to, to talk with you and, and uh, about all these things. I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you so much for your interest and thank you for your time. Thank you for listening also. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much.